Hello, my name is Elaine Stafford and you're very welcome to KPMG's podcast Conversations with Auditors, the podcast where we explore the relevant issues, opportunities and new ways of working that are shaping the future of the profession. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Una Curtis. Una has over 30 years of experience of delivering technical advice on IFRS and Irish SCAP to a range of different entities. Una, thanks for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here, Elaine. Una, companies have a lot to think about when getting ready for their year ends. You've been there before, back in the 80s and early 90s, when we were in a period of high interest rates and high inflation. This impacts on our non-financial assets and impairment testing. Can you give some advice on this? Thanks, Elaine. And yes, we are in higher inflation and high interest. But I suppose, you know, when you think back that in the 80s, inflation hit nearly 20% and I remember having to pay over 16% interest on my mortgage when I bought my first house. We're not quite as bad as we were in those cases. But still, times have changed, right? And, you know, interest rates have gone up, inflation has gone up, and these all impact on impairment testing. And impairment testing is a matter of significant management judgment, right? And like what you're doing when you do an impairment test is you're actually trying to project the profitability of an asset or a CGU. And that means you're estimating the future. Now, when times are uncertain, that degree of certainty that you can bring to those estimations is much lower, right? So there's a lot more involved in the current period. And companies have a lot challenging them in coming up with the projections of cash flows. So like when we look at the things they have to think about, they have to think about the profitability, they have to think about the impact on discount rates, they have to think about the current environment, they have to think about increasing energy costs, they have to think about you know, increasing cost of living on all the other costs that are going through. And also, you know, the customer behavior that's going to result from their customers. So I think it is highly unlikely that companies will be able to say they've no indicators of impairment in the current climate. So I, I think most companies are going to have to go and refresh their impairment testing. And I think there are a few key things they have to think about. And, and one is in relation to the assumptions. Like assumptions are going to be really important in the current period. As we've said, estimating the future is never easy. In times of uncertainty, it gets harder and harder. And when, when we think about all of the things that have to be incorporated into the assumptions now, things that necessarily weren't there before, like I don't think we've ever thought about an inflation assumption in an impairment test, right? It just hasn't come up. We've been in a reasonably constant low inflation environment. Now we have inflation, which is in double digits, right? People need to know what they're going to assume about the continuing inflation on the forecast period. So they've got a forecast for five years. When do they think inflation is going to start to come down? How quickly is it going to start to come down? And that's that's really critical. You also find that in high inflationary environments, companies do their best to pass on the increased costs through rising prices. But that's not always 100% possible. And it very much depends on the product 
and the competitive position of the company. So what have people assumed with regard to maintaining their profit margin? And what profit margin are they going to build into the terminal value that they use at the end of the impairment test? You also need to think about customer behavior, right? Because like in a time of high inflation, cost of living and particularly energy prices hitting customers, they need to look at their disposable income. And I think, you know, it's true that wage inflation has not kept up with the cost of living inflation. So therefore, disposable income has got squeezed. And that can have a significant impact on customer behaviour, particularly in the areas of discretionary spending, right? It is likely that people will pull back and will spend less than they did in the past. And then I suppose the last thing to just emphasise in relation to impairment testing is the importance of disclosures. Users need to know the basis on which the projections were prepared. So they need to know about what did you assume with regard to inflation. I've never seen that for the last 10 years in, a, in, in an impairment assumption, but it needs to be there, I think, this year. We also need to know about what we're, we're going to assume with regard to growth in this period. Will there be a fall off in sales because of that squeeze on customer disposable income? Also, you need to think about, you know, regardless of whether there's an impairment or not, the increased discount rates are going to reduce headroom. And that's going to mean that more assets and more CGUs are susceptible to reasonably possible changes in assumptions. And as you know, that brings increased sensitivity disclosures. So to summarise in relation to impairment, you know, I think it's likely people are going to have to refresh their testing. I think they have a lot of challenges in coming up with the assumptions that they make. And thirdly, they really need to change and to be clear on the assumptions that they've made, made in their disclosures and that users can understand the scenarios they've actually incorporated into their models. Thanks, Una. Some great insights there. I think an important one is the piece around the disclosures. I know I certainly wouldn't have been thinking about inflation having to be disclosed. And it'll be one I'll be watching out for. Yeah, and, and you know, kind of that's what a change in environment means, you know, kind of and, and the things that will come out from this new environment, which we have not had to deal with in the past. I agree. And if we think about IFRS 9 then and expected credit losses. So under IFRS 9, we have to make a provision that takes into account the current conditions, but we've also to take into account future expectations. And my thinking would be that this current you know, environment that we're in, it's going to make that even more difficult to make those estimations now at year end. What advice would you give to companies? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be critical. And, and the key word you, you've said there is expected credit losses, right? You know, kind of banks and companies with long term, they probably have very sophisticated models which they've built. But it is likely that they've been built based on what has happened in the last 10, 15 years, right? We haven't had high inflation in those. So I'm not sure that banks have actually built increasing inflation into their models. I'm sure they're doing it now and trying to capture the impact of that. But that's going to be, if you like, a change that has to be reflected in the model, right? Also, 
you know, you've got things where government has supported uh, consumers in relation to higher energy costs. Mm -hmm. That's unlikely to continue long term into the future because government won't be able to afford it. So what are the models assuming about the continuation of support for customers? I think the COVID supports are more or less gone now, but the energy supports are still there. So what what are what are the model assuming with relation to that? So there'll be, again, more information which has to be reflected in the models than, than we had in the past. And, you know, it's not just about those sophisticated companies. It also applies to the basic trade payables, trade, trade receivables, beg your pardon, and contract assets. Again, like a lot of companies are using historical loss rates and matrices to come up with their expected loss. But if those historical loss rates reflect a period of low inflation, they're not necessarily the type of loss rates we're going to see in the future with higher inflation and with greater uncertainty. So again, companies need to look at those models and see whether they need to flex them for the current environment so that they pick up the actual expected losses that will come in the current environment itself. And again, can't emphasize enough that the narrative disclosure around credit risk is equally important. Users of the financial statements want to know that companies have actually taken the current environment into account and that they have changed their processes and procedures to actually manage the increased credit risk. So you, you would expect not to see the same language around credit risk management as you had in last year's financial statements. You'd look that that was more in-depth and dealing with the fact that the environment has actually changed. And what about if a company has um, insurance over their trade receivables, as, as many companies do? Does that impact on your, um, your ECL provision? I'm afraid not, Elaine. That doesn't come into the calculation of expected credit loss. It's a separate contract. Right. You've got to look at the loss expected from the counterparty, which is your debtor. Right. So you have to ignore the fact that you've protected yourself. That will get reflected as a reimbursement asset on the other side of your balance sheet. Uh, it will not be a deduction or will not reduce the deduction from your debtors. So you, your expected credit loss effectively has to deal with the defaults that you expect from the actual customers that you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's what you recognize as your ECL. And then if you have credit insurance, you get to record a separate asset, which is the reimbursable reimbursement right that you have from the insurance company or the credit protector. A lot to think about there going to be a lot more complex than it has been in the past. It really is. It is. And if we think about then rising costs, that's obviously going to impact on a lot of business and it might, for some, their operations now might become loss making. In other cases, there could be loss making contracts. What's the standards that will apply here? That, that's a very interesting question. And, and it's actually two in one, Elaine, because the, the approach to loss making operations is quite different to loss-making contracts. And I'm going to talk first about loss-making operations, right? And I suppose at the extreme, if, if the operation that's loss-making is a really significant part of your business, well, that brings you in to having to challenge the going concern concept in its entirety, right? So you need to, in that case, 
look at the requirements around going concern and that is that you look at what is realistic possible that you incorporate in the scenarios that you're looking at a severe but plausible downturn scenario and that you make sure that any mitigating plans you have are both realistic and achievable and you know the fact that you could always find funding and borrowing in the past doesn't necessarily mean in the current environment that you'll be able to get it. So you need to take those factors into account. You also need to think that, you know, in in your going concern assumption, while you may still you may still meet the going concern assumption and be able to apply going concern, but you may have had to take quite significantly more judgment to actually get there. And that brings a lot of increased disclosures. Now, hopefully your loss making operation is not a major part of your business and it's uh, just an individual uh, activity that you have. In that case, there is no standard, right, that applies because you cannot make provision for future losses. You take them as they come. So you reflect the current year losses, but nothing else in your in your results. However, if you have a specific contract that is loss making, then you're likely to fall into the scope of IAS 37, right? And when you get into IAS 37, then you get to look at the contract itself and make a provision if it is considered to be an onerous contract, right? So it's going to be really critical to analyze losses and and identify what losses are due to just an operation itself being loss making and what losses derive from an onerous contract. Because if you get onerous contract accounting, you can generally speaking apply IS 37. I say generally because if it's an insurance contract or a financial contract, you're going to be in IS 17 or 9. But most of us are going to be thinking in terms of IS 37. And am I right in thinking that there was a change to IS 37 recently? Very timely reminder. Yes, a change to IS 37, which became effective from the 1st of January 2022. So it applies in 2022 year ends. Okay, And and what that did was (laughs) there was diversity in practice. People took different approaches to uh, accounting for the losses of onerous contracts. Some took what they called an incremental approach. So they they looked only at the incremental costs that were incurred in fulfilling the contract, whereas others took a a full absorption costing approach or a direct cost approach and provided in full for all costs associated with the contract. And and that went to um, the ISB and they made a very narrow scope amendment to IS 37 saying that it should be the full absorption costing approach. So you you do attribute the share of fixed overheads in determining the loss that you recognise for an onerous contract. And then if I think about those owners contracts and the related assets, say my inventory or fixed assets, does the case that now I have, you know, an owner's contractor I'm loss making, does that mean that those other assets have fallen in value? And it may and it may not, right? It, they're not directly related because you could have a single contract that's onerous, but the other contracts that use the same assets might be quite profitable still. So they may be 
enough to support the recoverable amount. But but look, you know, if you have a number of loss-making contracts, well, then the likelihood is you've got a trigger for impairment and you're going to have to go through the impairment process and assess the carrying amount of all of the assets or cash-generating units that you have to make sure that you have no impairment. So they're not directly related, but certainly, you know, a number of loss-making contracts are going to be an indicator that you need to start looking a little bit more closely at carrying value of assets and and cash generating units. And then if we think about COVID-19, right, many of us have been working from home for a period. Some companies have now adapted a hybrid model and employees are choosing to work from home, you know, still today. Um, So we've got vacant office space in some cases or underutilized space. Does that give us another indicator of impairment? It does, right? In in it does for that particular asset concerned, right? And and particularly if it's vacant, right? If you've got vacant asset, and and that asset is not generating generating any economic benefit, then it has to be pulled out of the cash generating unit and looked at as a separate asset. So you will be looking at that asset on its own and doing an impairment of that asset on its own because it's not part of the cash generating assets that should be in the cash generating unit. So they have to come out and and you look at those vacant buildings. Now, the amount that you impair it by is not necessarily the entirety of the right of use asset because you do have to look at is it possible to sublease this asset? And if you can get a tenant in and you know, you're going to be able to get some rental income in, then you will impair it down to the value of that rental income. Now, you know, you you do have things to think about. If you sublease, you and when you sublease, you then become a lessor, right? And because it's likely to have been for the remainder of your lease term, that's likely to be a finance lease. So you may have a finance lease receivable uh, to record rather than the right of use asset that's there at the moment. You won't do that, obviously, at the impairment stage, only when you've actually entered into the sublease. Where you have underutilized assets, you need to look at those in the context. They, they're still producing economic benefit, so they stay within the confines of the cash generating unit. And you will test those as part of the cash generating unit. So, will that always trigger an impairment? No. Uh, might it trigger an impairment? Yes, it might. So that will depend on the rest of the economic benefit that has been generated by the cash generating units. And what happens to my lease liability then? So if oh. I'm, I get to take that off balance sheet? <laughs> no, your lease liability stays. Uh, you still owe that. You've signed the contract. And unless that contract is cancelled or your liability expires or you settle it, it stays on your balance sheet. Right, so no, no relief on the liability side of the balance sheet. Subleases don't don't get us an out. No, subleases do not get you out. And if we think then about tax, so if if I'm looking at my future profits, they're obviously going to be impacted by the uncertainty that's out there. Um, and in the past, when looking at the recoverability of my deferred tax assets, I would have been looking at my future tax projections and my profits. Any advice that you'd give to companies there? Yeah, and, and again, like this almost brings us back to where we started on the impairment testing because, again, when we're looking at the recover, recovery of, of deferred tax assets, we're looking at projecting profits into the future 
against which we'll be able to recover those assets. And just like when we're looking at the recoverability of a cash generating unit and we're into projecting profits, it's the same issues that are going to come up in relation to recovery of tax. We still need to build in the assumptions around inflation, interest rates and you know increasing costs in identifying the profits that will be there to help us recover the, the assets. And I suppose it's, it's really important to make there, one key thing here is those projections shouldn't be different, right? They might be prepared for different purposes, but each is required to be your best estimate of the future. And that shouldn't be different depending on the purpose for which they're being used. So your projections of profit for the recovery of deferred tax assets are likely or should be the same as your projection of profits when you're talking about recoverability of assets. And it just strikes me, Elaine, that there's one other thing that I probably should have raised uh, when we were talking uh, earlier about the impact of discount rates. And that is we need to think a lot of provisions, right, that we have on balance sheets or when we've been looking at uh, recoverability of maybe non-current assets. A lot of times we've been able to say that, you know, the carrying value is very close to the fair value, Mm. right? Because discount rates and interest rates have been so low that the impact of discounting hasn't been enough to move it materially away from carrying amount. Remember, that's not going to be true now, right? So we need to think about the impact that discounting is going to have on provisions, particularly like if you have a provision which is going to require expenditure out for the next like five or six years, like a 3% discount rate could have an impact of about 5% of the carrying amount. So we may not be able to make that statement about, you know, the discounting and fair value are, are not material. On, on items as we increase our discount rates. And I probably should have mentioned that when I was talking about uh, impairment earlier on as well. That increase in discount rate permeates the balance sheet a bit more than just around uh, impairment. So, so in my head right now, you know, I'm thinking my IFRS 7 disclosures, you know, spending a lot more time looking at them this year. Absolutely, absolutely. They're, they're, it's going to impact on anything that, that, that should have been discounted. Uh, that, that we, we didn't have to do in the past because of the low interest environment. Absolutely. And I'm also thinking for anybody um, on an audit team out there, you, you've made an important point about, you know, cash flows. They need to be the same cash flows, be it in my impairment model, be it in my, you know, goodwill piece, be it that when I'm looking at going concern, when I'm looking at deferred tax, they've all got to mirror up and Absolutely. be consistent. They, they all have to be consistent. They all have to be consistent. Yeah. No, I think lots, lots of uh, valuable advice there. And if we think then about climate matters, so climate matters, they continue to top the list of ESMA's enforcement priorities. And we're not there yet on the um, sustainability disclosures that the actual reporting that's going to be required there. But I think the bar seems to be getting higher with regard to disclosures on, on climate matters. And do you think what's happening in the current environment is causing that or, or what are your thoughts around those disclosures? Um, well, I think, Elaine, if we were really to talk about all the requirements of regulations around climate, we probably need a completely different session, right? Uh, because I think you could go on forever. All the regulators have different requirements, but you're right. All of them are asking people to up their game. Companies, and, and I suppose the one message 
if I were to pick one that's coming across loudly and clearly from all of the regulators is connectivity, right? They want the front half of your financial statements, the narrative reporting and the promises and the undertakings and the targets that you're setting in the front half to be reflected in the numbers in the back half. So, for example, if you're saying that you're going to um, change a a fleet of vans, right, then you need to build that in to your impairment, right, so that you're actually building in into that impairment model the cost of of replenishing that vans. And I suppose that reminds me of another point to make actually on impairment. Sorry, it just dawned on me now that, you know, when you in many times you've been able to assume in 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 modeling and in impairment that your depreciation charge approximates the expenditure that you need to make to maintain your assets right obviously with cost of assets going up that's not true any longer so your capital expenditure that you need to put into your impairment models is going to be higher than the depreciation charge that you've pulled through. So again, you need to know that companies have acknowledged that maintenance of assets is now going to be a higher charge than the, than the uh, depreciation charge they've put, they've put in. But to get back to, to climate, um, you also have to be careful when you're looking at your plans in, in the narrative part that you don't trip into a constructive obligation. Like if you if you think about um, say an environmental provision, like somebody in the mining industry and they have uh, done damage to a particular portion of land and they make a public statement that they plan to rectify that, that brings them into a constructive obligation, right? So, you know, if your climate plans are specific enough and address damage that has already been done to the environment, then you may be in constructive obligation territory and you should be recognising a provision in your financial statements. So you need to critically analyse the narrative disclosure to see whether they meet the, the threshold of a constructive obligation. You also may have met the threshold of capital commitments. If you've, you know, undertaken to, like we said, say, change a fleet of diesel vans into electric vehicles, well, is that enough to say that you're you're committed to that? And is that committed capital expenditure that should be noted in the financial statements? So really important uh, for regulators that what is in the front half of the financial statements in relation to climate is actually reflected in the numbers that are put together in the back half of the financial statements. So, you know, if I were to say to people what, what what's really important for regulators, I think I would pick that connectivity between the front and back half of the financial statements. I, I think that's a great point because we often find that somebody else writes the front half to the back half and, you know, they haven't made that connection between the two. Exactly. And also you may have people writing the front half which are not accountants mm-hmm. and they don't spot when they've gone over the line into that's a constructive obligation. So you, the accountants really need to be involved in reviewing it quite, you know, kind of closely to make sure that that line is not tripped. 
And just to touch on that obligation point, I know one of my clients, for example, they have a provision to restore back um, the, it's an environmental provision that they have. And if I think about it now and the points that you've made earlier, I'm going to have to expect the discount rate on that provision this year to in- increase. Absolutely, now. absolutely. Which will, you know, kind of funnily enough, have, have the result of decreasing the provision on, on your balance sheet because there's longer until it will actually um, be be spent. So the cur- in, in the current climate with higher interest rates, the present value of that obligation is less. It's actually the reverse of what we all might be thinking. Um, and if we go well, back... I, I suppose when you build in inflation on the cost, it might cancel, yeah. right? So yeah. you, you're going That's to inflate the cost point. of it as well and then discount. So you may end up more or less the same. And if we just go back to that, the climate related matters then, do you think the current uncertainty might cause companies to change the plans that they currently have? So, you know, new fleets, for example, that they mightn't actually implement those new fleets? And I suppose, Elaine, th- that is a real risk. And and like companies have so much challenging them at the moment and they have so much to consider. Like they have real commercial headwinds with them. They have supply chain disruption. Like they are dealing with a huge number of, of really challenging issues. And I suppose that does raise the risk of climate actions being put on the back burner, um, which would be a problem and it's a problem, you know, not just uh, it's a problem for the world, if you like, uh, because climate is so important. Um, but I, I think if, if, the, if there's a danger of that happening, then I think companies really need to be very careful about the targets they set and the undertakings they give in the front half. They need to go back and you know, if there's a danger that they're going to slip, well, they should be clear and they should be upfront about that in setting out what their timeline is to actually achieve the, the net zero or, or whatever it is that, they, that they're aiming for. So, you know, one would hope not because I think people do recognise how absolutely critical climate change is now. But, you know, if there is a danger of a slipping, well, then they need to relook at their narrative and make sure that their narrative is reflective of what is actually going to happen. Una, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Should you have any questions on the topics discussed here today, please don't hesitate to reach out to myself, Una, or your usual KPMG contact. Thank you.